There you go. I'm John Kane, and I welcome you to Let's Talk Native on this Tuesday, July 21st, 2020. While this program may not provide a path to spiritual enlightenment, we do encourage, in some cases, start conversations. We're going for a different kind of enlightenment here. We break the rules for Native Radio. We don't do prayers, we don't do buffalo speeches, and we don't do spirituality shows. We take a tough look at history, oppression, and survival. We talk about culture, the arts, politics, and identity. And we may step on a few toes along the way. But our real goal here is to bring people together by breaking down what separates us. We will take on the false narrative and provide critical thinking to all that's heaped upon us. And we do it all live right here from the Cattaraugus Territory of the Seneca Nation. So let's talk native. Uh, You are either watching us on Facebook Live or you're watching us on YouTube. And you may be hearing us on our podcast. I encourage you to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. I encourage you to subscribe to our YouTube channel so you not only catch the YouTube videos of this show, but also our short-form videos that we release from time to time. Uh, So, again... Take a look, uh, join the team, and uh, and I look forward to your comments on on, on all the social media. Look, we're on we're on Twitter, we're on Instagram, we're <laughs> we're on YouTube, and of course we're on Facebook. So um, uh, you know, join us and uh, join us in the conversation. All right. So my topic for today is how does it feel? And I don't want this to come out uh, come across as being. Uh, um, I'm not trying to charge anybody. I'm not trying to, you know, rub anybody's face in it. But as I watch some of this, some of what's been uh, playing out in Portland with uh, with these federal police uh, agents, whatever they are, and I know they're they're kind of tied to the border, but they're really connected to homeland security, and 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 you know they're obviously fulfilling some of um, uh, Trump's agenda, uh, but. There and there is a good amount and a rightful amount, maybe perhaps not enough, outrage over the idea that there's these federal agents, these federal police that are grabbing people. Um, and, and of course, they're, they're suggesting that they're only grabbing a certain type of person that has committed some sort of crime. But that doesn't seem to be the case. And what they're using is very aggressive tactics and all kinds of other stuff. So it is really disarming. But here's the thing from from my perspective. You know, being uh, Gunyagahaga, Mohawk, and knowing how often that I've been stopped by federal agents, not because I was crossing the border, just be- because I was going from from here in Seneca Territory to Akwesasne, to Mohawk Territory. Th- these federal agents, uh, ever since 9-11, have expanded what they do. Um, and although they, they may be a Border Patrol agents, they are doing more than just checking for immigration issues. And uh, and I know that I, I personally have been stopped. In fact, on one trip, I got stopped on the way up and on the way back. I mean, it's uh, – and, and again, it's not necessarily right at the border. These guys have taken leeway, you know, as far as 100 miles away from, from any border crossing. And, and look, they're in most states. And they are part of the basis of what Trump has put together for this this – police force that is aggressively going after protesters now and now now of course he's threatening to, to send these you know, these federal agents into chicago and detroit and new york it just so happens that he's threatening to, to show this this federal police presence in all states that have democratic governors or, or legislatures so it's it's very political and, and he's flat out said i mean that you know all these 
liberal governors, you know, need him to to enforce this, you know, put this police presence there. And of course, it's only exacerbating the situation. Now they are becoming the reason for these protests. But again, Native people have experienced harassment, assault, arrests at the hands of a, a much lower um, present police force um, in in many of the native territories from, you know, again, all across the, the, the U.S.-Canadian border and the U.S.-Mexico border. So it's, there's a certain part of me that's, that again, you know, our voices haven't been heard for, for you know, for years. And now, you know, that our voices are being heard, but also people are starting to realize some of the things that we've been complaining about, they are starting to experience. I mean, you can't allow this stuff to go just because it's it's affecting people that aren't you. Because at some point, it might be you. And in fact, you can almost count on it that at some point it will be you. You know, and this fits in line with, with also this this notion of, you know, white people starting to scramble about what's going to happen this month when the $600 checks stop. And I don't mean just white people. But again, Native people, Black people, we've lived with poverty. We've lived with oppression. We've lived through this, this adversity. I just don't know how white people are going to do it. And, and, and it concerns me. Because, look, I've seen white people lose their mind because you tell them that you can't call yourself the R word for your high school mascot anymore. I've, I've seen the vitriol. I've seen the hate. And I've seen how crazy people get. I mean, when we were at Lancaster High School, one of, one of the Native women that was with us was pregnant. And she got, she, I mean, literally this old, chubby, former cheerleader started shoving her around. I mean, it's, it's, it's that kind of crazy. I mean, I was threatened. I mean, I didn't wasn't too worried about it, but but I, I've seen how people, how white people act when when something gets taken away from them. This this line between white privilege and white fragility, uh, there's not much of a line there anymore. And in fact, the I mean, that whole you know trajectory of white supremacy, white privilege, and white fragility, they're they're all intertwined because a part of the need to promote white supremacy and uh, and you know s- save their white privilege is because they're f- because of white fragility there's a fear and some of that fear isn't being caused because of oppression it's because of circumstance but like i said native people we've lived with the highest unemployment rates it didn't take a, a pandemic to to change our unemployment rates we, we've already been at the bottom of the scale or the top of the scale, depending on how, how you want to measure it. So what's going to happen when the 53% of the population, the group that is represented by 53% of the population, starts experiencing this? Look, I know white, some white people have struggled. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that there's not a white person who's never seen struggle. I know that's the fact. And in fact, in all likelihood, those are the people who are more allied with us, for the most part. But... There's a whole nother group of people that are still just really packed in solid with Trump and, and think that Trump can do no wrong. And you know what? Those morons are being affected by, you know, by Trump and, and some of these policies that have been longstanding that are now being turned towards them. So I, I, do, I ask the question, how does it feel? Because you're going to feel it. And I've talked about this on a couple of shows. It's going to get pretty bad here. And I got to tell you, my concern 
isn't about what the police are going to do to me. My concern isn't even so much the economic collapse. My concern is how are crazy white people going to act when it hits them? I mean, we feel pretty secure where we're at. But, you know, between climate change, you know, economic collapse, you know, political unrest, social unrest. I don't know. You, you take a, a people who who've regarded themselves as superior and who do represent the dominant part of, uh, of American society. What happens when they start turning on each other and, and on, on us in a much bigger way, not just out of racism, but out of desperation? Look, I, I know it sounds, you know, you know, end of days Armageddon stuff, but I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> I mean, like I said, Native people and Black people, we've experienced adversity. We know how to survive. I'm not saying we like it. I mean, <laughs> don't, don't get me wrong. We don't. We don't like the poverty. We don't like the oppression. We don't like the policies that have resulted in, uh, you know, in you know, diminished lifestyles or, or, you know, look, diminished life expectancy, all the things that, that, that all the, the, the lists that we top, we don't want to be the top of those lists. We know why it happened. It's all been U.S. policy. But at some point, there's so much degrading within American society that I think white people are ill-prepared for what's coming. And, and of course, they're going to be in denial. I mean, they are in denial. The, the typical Trump supporter is in a complete state of denial. They won't recognize, they won't acknowledge any of, the, uh, of what's going wrong. I mean, it's crazy. I listened to this whole show today on NPR about uh, that 50%, over 50% of the American population says, says they won't get um, a va- vaccinated for COVID-19. And, you know, the, the anti-vaxxer group, and, and I, look, and I'm not condemning them. There's a, I have some issues with vaccines, you know, and, and, I, and I'll admit it. But it's never been 50% of the population. And, and this includes people who, don't, who do, do trust Trump and people who don't trust Trump. This includes, you know, people who are, are worried that a vaccination or a vaccine is being developed too quickly and that it's going to be unsafe. And of course, then you have almost everybody on the right Who's bought into this notion that the whole COVID nineteen thing was a hoax? And it's not just look. There's, I got some native friends who were in, in that camp too, and so everybody's you know everybody's in jeopardy. But when it starts to really take its toll on them, I don't know what. I mean, I know what happens when when a, when a priest loses religion. <laughs> I mean, I've seen what happens when, when a, 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 the clergy bottoms out because they lose their faith. They lose their freaking minds. They become the, you know, they, become, they lose all sense of, of morality because they were taught their whole life that their, that their morality and ethics were bound to the religion. And so when the religion goes away, all that stuff goes away. So what happens when all these people who are bound to Trump as their leader, especially if he if he gets his ass kicked in the in the election in November, look, <laughs> I you know I, I when I ask that question, I I am somewhat sympathetic. I, I think white people are ill prepared for what's coming, so I ask, how does it feel? And I don't mean it to be sound vindictive. I would like to know how it feels because look, every time I listen to the radio, I hear story after story about the hardship. And I know that they they put 
people of color on those shows. But, but you know what? We've been dealing with hardship all this time. So when I, when I started to hear, you know, all these white people struggling, you know, with things like childcare and, uh, and healthcare and all, it's like, welcome to the party, folks. So, I mean, I just, there's a part of me that says, yeah, the water's not nice. I mean, as you jump in the pool here, you're going to find out that it's rough in here. And like I said, we're going to see how this unfolds. Look, 4 million people in the United States um, are confirmed to have COVID-19. And the CDC is making calculations based on their antibody tests that they believe and the, you know, extrapolating data suggests that it's 10 times that. You know, so look, if you're talking about, you know, 4 million people, that means 40 million people probably really have it. And that's, those are usually conservative estimates. But here's the thing, with 40 million people testing positive, that still leaves almost 300 million people yet to get it so it's nowhere near and then look and if if only 50 percent of the u.s population is willing to get vaccinated it, it you won't you won't start stop the cycle i think the, the calculations say that at least 75 percent of the of a, of a given population has to be vaccinated for the for the disease to run its course and look i'm concerned about vaccination look Trump was an anti-vaxxer. He ran on an anti-vaxxer, uh, you know, platform. He talked about, you know, you know, all of, you know, supporting all of these these anti-vaxxers and other places. That's part of his base. Now, now he's bragging about, oh, how quick they're coming up with a vaccine. And you know what? You know who's coming up quickly with a vaccine? The UK and China. The UK and China are farther along on their vaccines. The UK, Oxford, I think, is where. Um, the the most promising vaccine. The United States isn't isn't the one getting it done, you know. So, I mean, how do you how do you take a guy who talks out two sides of his face? All of a sudden, you know, Trump says to wear a mask. You know, he's been saying not to wear a mask all this time. You know, and then spins out you know all of this. Well, you know, wearing a mask can be dangerous. No, it can't. Surgeons wear masks. Why would they? Would a surgeon put on a mask if it was going to somehow diminish his ability to perform? I mean, it's it's an absurd proposition. But that's the stuff that comes out of the the president of the United States. And and of course, you know, we as Native people, we're getting we're feeling the brunt of uh, of this COVID nineteen stuff. I mean, we are the least protected. We we were the last ones to the party as far as getting te- uh, you know tests done and that kind of stuff. Our rate of you know deaths for our population are the highest. We're right there with with, the, with Navajo territory as a percentage of our population. And and I don't think this thing isn't over by a long shot. I you know I'm seeing you know daily death totals in in some of these states like florida and texas arizona higher than they've ever been new york you know uh cro- or no i'm sorry in, in the u.s they crossed over again a thousand people you know um dead for the for the day today and so it's it's getting worse it's not getting better and so all this and all the belief that the economy already took the hit and now it's the economy's reopening <laughs> Look, you don't have a clue. I mean, the New York State is something like thirteen billion dollars 
behind in uh, in their budgetary circumstances. Just right now, it could be worse by the end of the year. Every town, every every municipality, every county, every state is going through this stuff. And you know what they're hoping? They're hoping the federal government is going to print some more money and send it their way. And it's never going to be enough. I mean, uh, Governor Cuomo, I think, he has the, you know, built into their budget, he can just cut stuff without any approval from the legislature. And so he's doing it. He, you know, he's, he's kind of, and it's going to cut school funding. It's going to cut all kinds of, you know, essential programs. So again, where, you know, how are people going to deal with that? I, I Look, we've been on on the skinny with all this stuff. We know what it's like to have our, you know, our budgets cut and being deprived essential services and that kind of stuff. We've experienced that. I don't know what the, what the broad-based American public is in, and white people in particular are prepared for. And look, what really sucks is right now this, this federal police thing, it's targeting the very people who are, who are the activist community, the ones who are demanding change, the ones who, who really want to see you know, police departments are either defunded. I say at least disarm them. I mean, the, the ones who want justice reform. These are the ones who are being targeted. So, you know, as far as the, you know, these, this federal police force attacking people, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty terrible. And it's clearly um, an attempt to, to silence critics. But one of the things that you know, I see over and over again are the essential voices are silenced. And, you know, look, that's, that's why we do this. That's why I do this. I know that as we do this program, and we're you know, entering our 11th year here, we haven't always said the most popular, you know, voices the most popular opinions here. But I'm not trying to make popular videos. I, you know, I, I would love to, I'd love to have, you know, a million people listening. But... I don't want a million people listening like I'm a squirrel video. I, I want to engage people. I want people to engage each other. And I'm not even saying necessarily disagree. Look, I've, I, I spent most of yesterday and today engaged in a battle with um, the folks down uh, in the Canisteo Greenwood School District because their, their team, their school nickname is, is the R Word. And of course, right? Then there's two left, Ariskini out near Utica, and they're going through it. And, and of course, Arisk, um, uh, uh, Canisteo Greenwood. And man, like I said, when I see the vitriol that comes out of, out of you know, these, these white people who will literally say, no, our name is about honoring Native people. Then when the Native person speaks up, they tell you to shut the F up or to, you know, leave the country or, you know, this, this conversation doesn't concern you. You know, we're redskins. I was, no, you're white people. No, we're redskins. No, no, you're white people. And I literally, this one woman says, "I've we've got redskin blood flowing through our veins." I said, "Well, you got white skin and redskin blood." I mean, I mean, the 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 absurdity. And you know what? You can damn sure. I mean, you look at you look at any of these profiles, and they're all Trumpers. I mean, I don't know. It's amazing to me how every issue, the mask issue, um, the you know. The, the the statue issue every issue becomes a right and left thing immediately if you criticize somebody the first thing they do is call you liberal I don't you know I don't fit in those boxes but you know these are the conversations so I engage people and sometimes 
I'll admit, I get I get a certain amount of enjoyment out of engaging people that don't agree with me because it's it's you can almost you know you know flesh out the absurdity of their position as you engage them and they get frustrated they say stuff and then they try to take it back and next thing you know they're trying to delete their comments and that kind of stuff but um but part of it isn't to change the mind of the person you're engaging it's it's so people who are watching this from the sides and people who are who are witnessing what you know what's playing out they get to see you know the absurd position that a bunch of white people who've appropriated a native image and a and a slur representing native people how absurd their position is so but i do this on all topics you know and of course we always get hit with you know why is it so important isn't there don't you have substance abuse problems you know so you get some white person who's obviously engaged in this in this in this debate taking time out of their lives to defend calling themselves a racial slur and want to question why we have taken the time to call them out on using a racial slur. I mean, it, it, you know, I, I posted something. I said, you know what's more racist than a village of white people using a racial slur for, uh, for Native people as a mascot? When you tell them it's wrong and seeing their response. That's when, man, that's when the stuff really starts to fly. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's pretty incredible. But this is, that's why I say... <sighs> When I see how um, fragile people are over some of these social justice issues, and I, I get it, everybody on the right calls everybody on on the left weak snowflakes. But when you see how passionate they are, you realize how weak they are because their their passion is based on their insecurity. And so what happens when both the liberal snowflakes and the, and, and the conservative snowflakes, what happens when they really start to, to experience some deprivation? I'll tell you, that's when, when all hell's going to break loose. Because I'll tell you, there's nothing, <laughs> there's nothing more dangerous than white people who see somebody else succeeding where they're failing. That's why you had the Tulsa riots or the Tulsa massacre. That's why you had the Osage murders. That's why you had, you know, um, you know Greenwood. That's why you had all of these. That's why you had in that in that ten year period between like nineteen ten and nineteen twenty, every city in the in the United States had major. They called them race riots, but it was white people attacking people of color. And part of it was out of jealousy, and again, out of fear that people that they looked at down upon were having success when they couldn't. And look, we're going to be pretty secure in our communities. But I'll tell you, when those communities out there, especially in the urban areas, I mean, I'm glad, you know, look, we've got Buffalo that's pretty close, but I couldn't imagine being a a native territory that is almost a suburb of of a city because, man, we would be vulnerable. I mean, as it is, I can see our shops being robbed. I can see some of that stuff, you know, coming to bear. And and it's it's not just going to be, you know, people on the lowest end of the of the white man scale. You're going to see a lot more people dropping into that into that air, into that that part of the, um, you know, dropping out of the middle class, I guess, into the desperate class. I mean, look, most native people never made it to the middle class, but most white people. 
They've been resting comfortably there. They've seen generation after generation do better, generation after generation. They've, they've accumulated wealth. They've inherited their parents' house and their grandparents' house. They've been able to, you know, again, you know, build themselves up. They, they were able to buy nice properties and, and, and buy them cheap. And they were able to get, you know, better paying jobs. They, they've lived, lived great. Well, some of that stuff is going away. And it's going away for everybody. The, the difference is some people are more accustomed to having, you know, to living with adversity than others. So, you know, like I said, I, I say, how does it feel? I know how it feels. It sucks. But some of us have been dealing with it for a while. So it's, you know, it's not, I mean, we, many Native people and, and Black people know that we can get through the other side of this stuff. You know, and there's no question that, that that there are black people and there there are native people who have gotten way too comfortable in living like white people, and they're going to struggle too. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I don't want to suggest that. Just like I don't want to say every no white people know how to struggle. <laughs> Look, there's plenty of black people and native people who are going to be ill prepared for the struggle coming forward too, and maybe we're all going to be ill prepared a little bit. I mean, some are going to be more ill-prepared than others. But I think people should examine how it feels. And they should figure, start to figure out what they're going to do to, um, to overcome. And you know what? The best way is, to, is relationship building. I mean, that's how, that's how we, we, we all get through this stuff. Unfortunately, the racial tensions that exist in the, in the United States right now are so heated they're so toxic that you know these these kind this kind of adversity you know not just the pandemic but you know the potential economic collapse it's not going to bring people together i'm sorry i mean it'll bring some people together but it's not going to bring people together it's going to cause people to go go for each other's throats all right, hey, we're at the bottom of the hour, so we'll take a break and uh, and, and come right back. I, I'll give an update, at least, you know, kind of an update, to the extent that I have one, on what transpired with uh, the special counsel that was to be held yesterday for the Seneca Nation and paying off the state. We'll talk about that when we come back. This is John Kane. All right, thanks for coming back. This is John Kane. This is Let's Talk Native. And uh, hey, let me get a shout out to my sponsors. I want to thank Ross and Holly John and the RJE family of businesses, Eric White and ERW Enterprises, uh, and the folks at Grand River Enterprises as well. Uh, look, I also want to thank, look, I got a couple of people who, who I got a, another money gram you know, from Tony in the mail. I, you know, Heather sent me uh, a few bucks uh, on uh, on PayPal. Look, all of this stuff helps because look, we're we're like, as I said over and over again, we're always trying to improve. We're look, looking to buy a new soundboard, and we may you know try to do some things to you know. Uh, improve the product that we're delivering so uh look 20 bucks here 20 bucks there that's the stuff that accumulates so we can buy stuff um you know my my regular sponsors the you know the guys who who take care uh of what we're doing here on a weekly or monthly basis they help us pay the bills 
But you guys who send in, you know, a twenty-five dollar check or you know, or a PayPal donation, you help us upgrade our equipment. You know, so again, it's it's greatly appreciated. I, I thank you. And again, you can go to our pay, PayPal. I think if you on our website, we got the PayPal link on there, don't we, Jake? Yeah. If you go to our um, our uh, website, which is www.letstalknative.com, you can see the the little PayPal link There's and. A, yeah, oh yeah, go to the page, support the show and, uh, page, and then you'll you'll see how to uh, how to make a PayPal donation. So again, those of you who have done it, um, and I want to thank Liz Mariani. She's one of the ones who uh, pressed the issue about PayPal. So I posted up the link, and and and, and lo and behold, uh, you know, a few checks, you know, a few donations came in. So greatly appreciate it. Uh, thank you. For that hey, by the way, I did go over to um, the park formerly known as Columbus Park, formerly the home of a Columbus statue. We uh, went to a meeting there today, this evening, and it was good to see people, a few people gathering. One, uh, one white guy walks up and tries to disrupt the whole thing, you know, telling us they were all full of ota. Um, that's not an Italian word, but <laughs> uh, but no, we, uh, so but no, it was it was a good gathering. It was good to see people uh, feeling energized about the statue being moved and giving a, an, an accurate testimonial as to um, you know shame on you know the Federation of Italian Americans and you know uh, Councilman Rivera and Mayor Brown for refusing to acknowledge any of the problems that 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 statue represented, other than their fear that us battle in engines we're going to go deface it or knock it over or throw it in the niagara river hey if, if that threat is what got got rid of it then then so be it we'll take credit for it all right um so the special council did not happen yesterday uh the seneca nation did not vote to send a half a billion dollar check to new york and um submit to to paying another half a billion going forward between now and 2023 not saying they're not going to do it. I'm just saying they didn't do it yesterday. Now, uh, look, the show we did on Saturday got a lot of views. Um, and while I, I don't think we, you know, were were the singular effect at getting people energized to to call their counselors, show up at the you know the council building, uh, nation buildings, or anything else. Uh, there was a, a, enough enough of a movement underfoot already uh, by especially by women in the community, you know, to that were raising hell. But I don't think it's a coincidence that uh, that our both on YouTube and on Facebook we had a lot of views of, of the show that we where we talked about this the subject. And look, I'll say it again: they shouldn't pay the state. They should never pay the state. And whether, regardless of the arbitration, you know that went against them, um, and you know two of those arbitrators rewriting the compact, it is it. <laughs> The Seneca Nation no longer has an agreement with New York State because an agreement means that both parties have to agree, and they don't agree. They don't agree on the interpretation. They don't, and which is kind of black and white. There is no, there's nothing laid out in the compact that said payments were to continue past 14 years. So the Senecas know they don't have to pay, or they shouldn't have to pay. But I gotta tell you, one, among the buzz that I heard from yesterday was uh, one of the counselors was heard saying that's New York State's money I don't know how widespread that view is amongst uh, the current Seneca Nation counselors but if it's only one guy man you better not vote that freaking guy back in because he I mean look 
I don't mind being an outlier on opinions, but I don't want to be an outlier on that side of uh, of the equation here. So when this one counselor, who is you know so bold and outspoken, and people think he's so edgy, when his the edge that he's you know that he's honing is for the state, I don't know. I I think that's that's a problem. So um, obviously there was noise made about this special counsel. So they so they canceled the special counsel. Um, don't I haven't had any direct contact with anybody. The, you know what I did here was just stuff on Facebook. Um, I haven't talked to any counselors. I haven't talked to anybody in in the, any Seneca official. But obviously, their uh, plan to put this thing to a vote yesterday has been reconsidered. Now I don't know again what that means. Are they still going to go forward? But I said it as I said on Saturday. There's there's a major election happening in the United States this November. One that can that can change much in the um administrative function of the federal government. The biggest challenge that the Senecas have over this battle with New York State is the failure of the Interior Department to do their freaking jobs. So, I mean, here's the thing. The Seneca Nation today should be pressing Joe Biden you know the what people hope is the alternative to to Trump in November. They should be pressing him today on issues relating to the Interior Department. Don't wait. They they should get a campaign promise from you know from the Democrat you know, the presumptive Democratic nominee that he will press the Interior Department to review because it's not even just about Seneca Nation or, or New York. Oklahoma, New Mexico. There are probably many states that I don't that I haven't even been following that are challenged by this idea of aggressive states extorting money out of their out of their gaming facilities. And when I say extortion, which is what I did the show on last Saturday, if the state's position is you are either going to share your revenue with me or we won't renew a compact, which means your casino has to close. Even though that's not true, if that's the position the state's taking and enough people in native government are fearful of that, and trust me, they are. <laughs> in 2013, when the Seneca Nation wrote a check for $400 million, yeah, the big, you know, the big, big check. They actually did one of those clearinghouse sweepstakes, clearinghouse sweepstakes checks and they presented it to, um, to the governor. I mean, yeah, when they write a, a big check for like hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, you, look, you're just, you're, you're folding your hand there, you know, and that's, I mean, that's almost an admission. And in, in this situation, they don't need to do it. They don't need to do it. They can kick the can long enough to, to see if the Interior Department or even if the, if the interior department doesn't take this on themselves and do what their jobs are, which is to evaluate the legal, uh, whether the law is being broken by these states as they impose this, you know, this extortion against native people. Oh, I know where, sorry, where I was going with the big check in 2013, that check was written because all 16 counselors and the president and the treasurer of the Seneca Nation thought if they didn't pay off the state, the state would not renew the compact that was renewed in 2016. 
So, oh, you got your your compact renewed, and look what happened. They turned around and screwed you anyway, because now they're saying, yeah, we renewed the compact, now you got to keep paying. Keep it coming, keep it coming. So they paid $400 million that they shouldn't have paid back in 2013. Now they're contemplating writing a check for another $500 million. $500 million. And you know what? I didn't even talk about this much on the show on Saturday. That $500 million is just part of the problem. Because by writing that check, you're agreeing to pay essentially another $500 million. You're, you're going to agree to pay 25% of your net slot drop through 2023. And you know what? If you think you were forced into doing that for this term of the, of the compact, every time you renew this one, they're going to use the same argument. I've even heard that some of the legal counsel representing the Seneca Nation says, you know what? We should negotiate a compact where we don't have to renew it. Wait, what did you say? You want to negotiate a perpetual compact that you'll never be able to call into question that they can't and you can't? You want to agree to something today that circumstances down the road that you're unaware of won't allow you to to readdress it? Are you freaking kidding me? Yeah, these are the lawyers who negotiated the compact that got misinterpreted. These are the lawyers who defended them in, uh, in arbitration. These are the lawyers who are saying, you know, cut the check. It's the cost of doing business. It doesn't matter that you're, you've already lost market share to the state. It doesn't matter that the, uh, that the casino revenue is contracting in general. These are probably the same lawyers saying, you know what? Maybe you should buy Delago. Maybe you should buy uh, you know, Finger Lakes or Batavia. Maybe you should buy the state's gaming enterprises and what, run them as state gaming enterprises? I don't, look, I don't know who uh, specifically advises the Seneca Nation on these issues. But I'll tell you, common sense isn't advising them this. And, but uh, at least yesterday, enough common sense prevailed that kept the Seneca um, nation from holding counsel to pressure, you know, to, you know, uh, to to pass a, a resolution to send a check. Now, I did hear only one counselor who was on Facebook says that he's opposed to it. I gotta believe there's more than one counselor, but you know what? If it's only a couple of counselors and the rest agree, they'll just, you know, that it's a safe bet. If you if you feel like you can vote against something and not affect the outcome, that's pretty safe. I mean, that's, that's pretty safe. So you get to save a little bit of face because you're not going to lobby the other counselors to, to, to vote with you. You're just going to stand up and say, no, I don't think we should pay the state. And then make no compelling argument to the others. So it passes, you pay the state, and you get to go on forever saying, yeah, I was the guy who was against paying the state. Remember that? See, the, look at the, uh, the, the record of counsel. I, I voted against it. It's not enough. It, look, it's not enough for a counselor to vote against this. Everybody should be raising hell. I mean, and and obviously some people did, and that's why they canceled council on uh, uh, on Monday. So uh, my hat's off to those people who, you know, whatever did the trick, at least for Monday, um, at least they dodged a bullet for that day. Uh, but look, keep, keep the pressure on. And look, this isn't even about, look, I know a lot of people say, oh, this is about corruption, it's the Seneca parties all corrupt and everything else. It, it, I'm not even even going there. I just think that there are people who get into native government who don't understand the power that they have. And so 
in they abuse some power on one hand but demonstrate how powerless they really feel they are on the other they 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 want to assert power over their people but they won't use that same arrogance to to stand up to the state don't run for office then you know i mean run a company where you can abuse your employees or something like that i don't know but i mean it it just doesn't make sense if you're not let's be clear here the state and the federal government are the enemy here and i'm not saying enemy that we need to shoot in the street not that kind of enemy but they are not our friends the the interior department sure as shit isn't our friend Anybody who thinks that the that the the whole purpose of the Bureau of Indian Affairs is to um, fulfill the trust responsibility that the United States has to to Native people, bullshit. Their jobs are to soften us up, you know, for dinner. <laughs> Honestly, the fact that the Interior Department, back to the Obama administration now, mind you, not just the Trump administration, the Interior Department has refused. Look, they wrote a lot of language associated with this, um, uh, with revenue sharing. They detailed on on what they considered the test for whether a revenue sharing agreement is legal or not. And it's clear that what New Mexico, New York, and Oklahoma are doing is illegal. But the Interior Department won't, won't address it. I mean, granted, it's this administration right now, but the last one wouldn't either. The Obama administration wouldn't address it. They They wouldn't do a wholesale um, reevaluation of what states were doing to Native people when it comes to this revenue sharing stuff. And to be clear, again, these aren't my words. This is the Interior Department who listed the, the, the criterion for a legal revenue sharing agreement is where the state offers a concession to the gaming enterprise that is substantial enough to make it worthwhile to enter into the agreement. But it has to be substantial and it has to be quantifiable. It means there has to be some way to measure what the state has given up, what the state has sacrificed, what the state is is giving to the native gaming enterprise that is worth the percentage. And in the case of the Seneca Nation, 25% of the, of, of the, of the slot drop. I mean... How do you quantify that? Especially since if you're talking about exclusivity, let's be honest, there is no exclusivity. And it for and for a variety of reasons. One, the, the New York State is involved in gaming. And the market is is saturated from the Canadian side, from Pennsylvania, even from Ohio. But it's also saturated by the state. With they they've turned every convenience store into a slot parlor albeit with 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 their their scratch off uh, tickets they've turned every social gathering administration restaurant bar um pizza parlor bowling alley into uh, uh what's what they call it crack draw oh no quick draw that's right yeah a quick draw their their state kino game they have this stuff going on constantly. They didn't eliminate that. Hell, even in the city of Salamanca, which is on Seneca land, Seneca law doesn't reign supreme over what the state makes legal in, in the city of Salamanca. So all that gaming is happening right there. On top of that, they turn the racetracks into, into, into casinos. So, look, 
the state couldn't give exclusivity. And and I've said this I said this in the last program. It was illegal for the state to open up casinos. And to the extent they turned their they could turn their their horse tracks into casinos, they did. They didn't give anything up for 1.4 billion dollars they got from the Seneca Nation during that 14-year period. They didn't give anything up. And in fact, they used the Senecas to build a market, to validate a market, to soften up their constituency so they could change their own state constitution so they could do class three gaming. And one of their bigger casinos is shares, you know, overlaps the market of the Seneca Nation, the Lago Casino. And of course, all of the, Sen- uh, the, the state casinos, even before the COVID, were struggling. Rivers you know, Casino out there in Schenectady, the Lago, down, uh, the, the one downstate. I don't, I don't know about the World Resorts Casino, how that's done, but probably not that good. I think they had to, re, they had to get a modification to the compact so they could eliminate a certain number of, of, of slot machines because of what it was costing them. So they're all negotiating with the state to reduce their tax burden. To reduce the not only their sales tax burden and their state tax, but but the percentage they have to pay to the state. That's not even a conversation the state is entertained with uh, with any native gaming. No, we got you to twenty five percent. We suckered you into the table, and that's where we're keeping you. Even if uh, our compact doesn't say we uh, you have to pay us, we're telling you you have to pay you anyway. And and we're going to get some white guys on an arbitration panel to validate that. So, again, Seneca people keep the pressure on. You tell your counselors, you tell your president, you tell your treasurer, look, you got an election coming up too. You got a counselor who says, oh no, that's New York State's money. Don't vote. I don't know if he's got up for re-election or not, but I mean, <laughs> I mean, hold your people accountable. And you better vote for people who are willing to stand up to the state. And if you don't, then you know what? Whatever happens, happens. I mean, you, you get what you deserve. I say this to Americans. You got what you deserved with Donald Trump. I think the United States deserves Donald Trump as president. Trump 2020, four more years. But Senegas, you guys got to decide what you deserve. If you deserve better than what you got, then you better mix things up a little bit. And and I, look, this isn't a specific condemnation of any specific counselor. Although the one who said that money's New York State's, you know, I, I don't uh, I don't know what to say about him. But uh, look, I am I'm glad that um, people watched Saturday's show. And if if any in any way we inspired people to to stand up and make some noise and get the Seneca Nation to to change its mind about holding that special counsel, then. I'm glad. Look, I live in this community. I, I, I don't get annuities. I don't, you know, I don't, I try to not to um, pull much of anything out of the Seneca Nation. I don't tap it. I do, I do have water there, I guess. I can't complain. My garbage does get picked up. But, uh, um, but look, I, I don't have a dog in this fight other than, than the support that I want to give to the Seneca people. And frankly, the support I want to give to Seneca government as well. I'm not a fan of elective style government. You guys know that. I'm more of a Guyana or a Goa guy. Um, you know, but I don't vote in elections. I don't vote in anybody's elections. <laughs> um, but maybe, you know, like my buddy uh, Matt says, maybe it's time people think about, about using some of our older processes to, to resolve conflict. There's a conflict brewing. If, if there are people in the Seneca Nation 
government that want to cut a check to the uh, to New York State and the people are against it, that's a conflict. And it may be time to use... Um, look, you can't have secret meetings and resolve it. And if you think the only way to resolve this is, well, maybe we had need to have another meeting with our lawyers. No, meet with your goddamn people. You know, that fire is a symbol of our family. But the fire is also a symbol of coming together and utilizing that, that fire as a, as a calming influence so we can counsel, so we can meet, so we can share conversations, so we can resolve conflict. You know, it's not just about three sides of the longhouse. It, it isn't just about that. It's, a, it's, about more, it's, it, it's about more of our culture than just title holders and it's, or <clears throat> elected counselors. It's about who we are as a people. And, and the choices that we make to resolve conflict. This is a conflict. And, and look, I hate the idea that any native territory is this dependent on gaming. But at this day, today, that's what the circumstance is. So, and the idea of losing this fight to New York State has ramifications that go beyond gaming. Like I said, there's troubled times coming ahead, folks. We better figure out how we're going to deal with the racism that finds itself not only in in the White House but in the in the governor's mansion. The racism that we see with every I mean, look here in Western New York, you can find Confederate flags flying all over the place, and plenty of Trump flags too. New York State you know is is a blue state <clears throat> so there's not a whole lot of fear that Trump's going to win New York state but the tensions again that conflict that exists seems to be irreconcilable you know in in years past look I've got a lot of people who I don't agree with politically or philosophically on certain things but it's become more and more contentious and it's harder. It's harder to have a good conversation about these things. Because people are, you know, and again, I'll say it again. White people in particular, they're scared. They're scared that they're going to drop from, uh, from being the majority of the U.S. population. They're worried when they drop, that somehow dropping below 50%. Look, there have been plenty of countries in the world that, were, that are the result of colonialism that have had a white minority rule with an iron fist. And I'm not just talking about South Africa. You can go to any place. Um, most of South America is still run by white people. It doesn't matter how many brown people live there or how many black people live in countries like Brazil you know, or, or Venezuela. It's still going to be run by white people. So, but this whole idea of slipping from the 53% of the U.S. population that white people now are to below 50%, it scares the crap out of white people. And you know what else scares the crap out of them? The fact that we won't take it. That we're standing up. Black Lives Matter, it scares, it scares white people. They, they aren't just outraged and angry. They're scared. Because if they have to think about black lives 
really mattering? Geez, that means that their place of privilege is at risk. If they've got to think that other people matter besides them, and perhaps even politicians are going to have to, at some point, say, oh, man, I just can't just take care of my donors. I'm going to have to take care of some people who are oppressed. You know, it all starts to connect. Washington football team didn't change its name because they grew a conscience. It's because the moneyed interest of Washington, of the Washington football team started getting scared about you know what was going to happen if more became more white people became anti-racist look when i suggest that the washington football team can call themselves the aryans it's not because the players are, are aryans it's not even because the owner is you know the owner's jewish <laughs> it's because the fans are you know i also suggested uh, the washington wasps why because the vast majority of white people are wasps White Anglo-Saxon Protestants, for those of you who <laughs> need it explained. No, I mean, look, there is a real sense of, of white privilege, white supremacy that is hanging on desperately. And it scares people. And those people who, who drop their fear and say, no, I'm going to stand with, you know, with my, my, my black brothers and sisters. I'm going to stand to defend native people in the battle, whether it's over Columbus statues or mascot issues. And look, even as I'm doing battle with people in, you know, in, in various you know, cities, I got a call from uh, Glastonbury, uh, Connecticut. One of the school board members wanted to talk to me. Uh, uh, Kennedy Williams uh, connected us up. So we, we, had a, we talked for over an hour. But he's the only black man on their school board. We could talk in a way that it's hard to have that conversation with white people because they don't have the same life experiences. They haven't felt the pressure of racism. They think racism is something so well, so easily defined that they, they even believe they can be victims of racism. I mean, when I hear a white person say, oh, you're trying to take away my redskin mascot, that's racist. I mean, it just gives you an idea how freaking ignorant some of these people are. And look, ignorance is is not a bad thing if it's an ignorance that can be corrected with education or enlightenment. But if it's willful ignorance, if it's if it's an ignorance, I mean, look, I talk about uh, cognitive dissonance. There are a lot of white people struggling with cog- cognitive dissonance because they have to embrace something that they know is wrong. But it's been so much. It's been such a core part of who they are as white people. That's why people want to fly the Confederate flag. They know it's wrong. They know that it represents slavery and the, and the pro-slavery states. But it's a part of it. They, they feel so committed and locked in. So we're going to keep... But I, I'll tell you, we're going to keep pulling people out of that group. Now, maybe not the most vocal. Maybe I mean, look, there are some people you're never going to change. But there are some people on the fringe, and I see it. And, and especially, you know, in these debates with these schools, when we went to Lancaster High School, out of those seven board members, I think two were opposed, three were fully supportive of keeping the name, and four were a little bit on the fence. But we didn't just pull those four on the fence over. The two that were saying no, we should keep the name, they changed. 
They started seeing it. And it wasn't just because of our work. But, look, I, I am hopeful. And there's a difference between hope, being hopeful and optimistic. Hopeful means I'm going to keep working. Optimistic means, you know, I'm not an optimist. <laughs> because I think I'm going to have to keep working forever <laughs> before, before, enough change, before change happens. But I'll remain hopeful. And maybe someday I'll, I'll, I'll become optimistic as well. For now, I'm still expecting the worst. But we're still going to push through. Hey, I want to thank you for listening. Um, and I'll keep you posted on whatever I learn with the Seneca Nation, paying off the state and that kind of stuff. Um, and look, for those of you that I'm asking how it feels, come talk to us. We'll tell you how we felt about it too. This is John Kane. This is Let's Talk Native. You know what? Thank you.